A newly revealed U.S. war crime in Syria that took the lives of over 60 civilians is causing shock and outrage around the world. Meanwhile, the trials of Kyle Rittenhouse and the killers of Ahmed Arbery continue. CIA orchestrated efforts to destabilize Cuba are condemned by supporters of the country's revolution. The social program budget is pushed to the side in favor of military spending and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's November 16th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ibarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, where do you want to start today? Well, I do want to talk in the beginning a little bit about the new revelations about this, the latest war crime committed by U.S. forces against the people of Syria. This is big news in one way, although for people in Syria or people in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Somalia, in Yemen, the people who have been the victims of U.S. airstrikes routinely, day after day, maybe this wouldn't be as surprising or shocking, but I do want to talk about it. We also, in addition to the stories you mentioned in the beginning, Nicole, where we're going to talk about the trials of Rittenhouse and the killers of Ahmed Arbery and what's going on in Cuba, or as it turns out, what didn't happen in Cuba. We also want to talk a little bit more about what happened at COP26. We have some reports. Abby Martin, our friend from Empire Files, was able to confront Nancy Pelosi. We have some audio on that. Anyway, there's a wide range of topics. Of course, Biden met with Xi Jinping yesterday. They've had a phone call before. This was their first face-to-face meeting, but it was a virtual meeting. We'll, we'll chat about that a little bit. Oh, and by the way, we have to talk about the so-called infrastructure bill and you know what's actually happening in the halls of Congress. But let's start with what happened in 2019 in Syria. Now, remember, everyone... The U.S. government is in Syria illegally because the government that's sovereign, the sovereign government, the Assad government in Damascus, the government that's ceded and recognized by the United Nations, has insisted that the U.S. leave Syria. But the U.S. using the pretext of fighting ISIS and the need to fight ISIS or to stabilize the battle against ISIS has refused to leave. So U.S. forces are occupying Northeastern Syria, where, by the way, Syria's oil fields are located. 
Anyway, here's the story. New York Times, it's a breaking story from the New York Times. They obviously did a lot in order to prepare for this news. It's their story in a way. Here's the headline. How the U.S. hid an airstrike that killed dozens of civilians in Syria. The military never conducted an independent investigation into a 2019 bombing on the last bastion of the Islamic State. Uh, No, it wasn't the last bastion. It was mothers and their children who were gathered together, huddled, obviously had nowhere to go, caught by the Euphrates River. I want to read a couple of sentences from the New York Times. In the last days of the battle against the Islamic State in Syria, when members of the once fierce caliphate were cornered in a dirt field next to a town called Baguz, a U.S. military drone circled high overhead, hunting for military targets. But it saw only a large crowd of women and children huddled against a riverbank. Without warning, an American F-15E attack jet streaked across the drone's high-definition field of vision and dropped a 500-pound bomb on the crowd, swallowing it in a shuddering blast. As the smoke cleared, a few people stumbled away in search of cover. Then a jet, tracking them, dropped one 2,000-pound bomb, then another, killing most of the survivors. It was March 18th, 2019, at the U.S. military's busy combined air operations centers in Qatar. Uniformed personnel watching the live drone footage looked on in stunned disbelief. Who dropped that? A confused analyst typed on a secure chat being used to monitor the drone. We just dropped on 50 women and children. Well, it turns out that it wasn't 50 women and children. It was 70. The Defense Department's independent inspector general began an inquiry when concerned members of the U.S. military reported it up the chain of command. A legal advisor said it was a war crime or it should be investigated. And then, of course, as happens over and over and over again, the thing that makes this shocking and yet routine is that the Pentagon High Command covered it up. They covered it up. They knew it happened. And as you go through this story, you find out that the number of civilians listed in the report was the number of civilians who were killed was like four or something like that. And of course, they they then said, well, since most of the people who died were Islamic fighters, four civilians, unfortunate, but you know, the cost of war, collateral damage, you name it. But of course, it wasn't four. All of the people were civilians. All of them, again, were mothers, grandmothers, their children, their babies. And, you know, this is a war crime. It's a violation of the Geneva Convention. It's also a cover-up. It's also a violation of U.S. law. But the thing that's most important, I think, about this is that if we find out three years later, because the New York Times has sent reporters in and does months of investigations and you have concerned members of the military coming forward, as they say in the article, they're risking everything. They're risking their careers by coming forward. They have nothing to gain, only a lot to lose. When you have all of this to report one battle in one little town in Syria, or not even a town, they're huddled against a river at the Euphrates, you think like, 
How did those 240,000 people die in Afghanistan? What about the hundreds of thousands who died in Iraq? I mean, how many of them were civilians and how many of them were fighters? I mean, not that the killing of the fighters would have been justified either because the fighters were resisting the foreign occupation of their country. They would have been justified. Uh, People in the United States, if you learn, by the way, that another country was coming and dropping 2,000 pound bombs and then another one on the survivors, mostly women and children, huddled against a river, no place to go. What would you do? I mean, wouldn't a big part of the United States take up weapons? And wouldn't the country that was fighting them then describe those people as terrorists? But we would, of course, reject that label. These people resisting this kind of a war and this kind of an occupation are justified. It's righteous, regardless of where they stand politically. That's really not the issue. The issue is they would have the right to resist. But these people were not resisting. They were just massacred. And, you know, from Vietnam, well, you could start back with Korea, Vietnam. This is how American warfare actually looks. And sadly, all the bleeding or almost all the bleeding, suffering, crying, mourning is taking place somewhere else. And so the American people are spared like the agonies of war. And as George W. Bush told us after September 11th, the Americans are basically given the message, just keep shopping. Again, that's what George W. Bush told the country after September 11th. Don't get too alarmed. We're going to take care of this. Just keep shopping. Anyway, Esther, this is American imperialism. Well, I, I think that war crime is the operative term. You know, the entire attack on Syria was a war crime, you know, as was the attack on Afghanistan or Iraq or Libya or this ongoing complicity of the U.S. and Yemen. And when you were talking about when you were going back in history and you were talking about North Korea, I was thinking, well, how, how about the Philippines? So you can go back to past more than a century, right, where we're not really taught this in history. And just the I don't know, I think it might be. More than a million Filipinos. Yeah, fighting, more than a million. Fighting to preserve their sovereignty, you know, as a people and as a country uh, against this new invader that was taking over from Spain, right? So, yeah, this is a long history of the United States just massacring people all around the world. And, you know, most Americans, we don't have a clue. Yeah. And the other part of this, I mean, I think, I think you're right, Brian, that the most important part of this is like how we can look back at any report, any civilian count in any, you know, in any battle and just know for a fact that those numbers are low, they're wrong, that there are more people who have died, who have been killed by U.S. imperialism. But the other component here that I think is really important is the cover up that happened. You know, there are people, individuals in the military who tried to report this. An Air Force lawyer, Lieutenant Colonel Dean Corsack, believed he had witnessed possible war crimes and he tried to report this. He alerted the Defense Department's independent inspector general. He also wrote that a unit had intentionally entered false strike log entries, quote, clearly seeking to cover up the incidents. He called the classified death toll, quote unquote, shockingly high and said the military didn't follow its own requirements to report and investigate the strike. But even worse, when this week, when the New York Times sent its findings to U.S. Central Command, which oversaw the war in Syria, the command acknowledged the strike saying 80 people were killed, but they said they were justified. They said the bombs killed 16 fighters and four civilians. And for the other 60 people, 
Well, they said, you know, it wasn't clear whether they were civilians. There's a forced ignorance, Walter, a forced ignorance. In other words, the American people are forced to be ignorant about what their country did internationally, what their country or the country that says is their country has done domestically, not just since 1783 when the Articles of Confederation formed a new government after the so-called War of Independence, but starting you know, 200 years earlier than that, when the American project really began. When you think about the enforced ignorance, Esther mentioned the Philippines, that happened the same year that the U.S. invaded Cuba. I mean, the U.S. invaded Cuba, it invaded Puerto Rico, and it invaded the Philippines. The Philippines came about eight months later in the so-called war against Spanish colonialism, but it was the beginning of American colonialism in the Caribbean and in Asia. Yeah, I mean, I think that that double standard is so relevant here. You know, the corporate media nonstop constantly said that the United States must intervene in Syria. The United States must do something because the government was bombing its own people. It was killing its own people. It was a humanitarian catastrophe. Just like in 1898, the United States said, oh, we have to free Cuba from Spanish colonialism or free the Philippines from Spanish colonialism when they themselves turned out to be the colonial powers. Here in Syria, it's the United States that's massacring dozens of civilians in bombing strikes. I mean, preventing loss of civilian life has nothing to do with U.S. foreign policy because they've shown themselves time and time again to be completely willing to do exactly the same thing in pursuit of their true foreign policy aims, which is domination, which is to not allow any other country to assert its sovereignty, assert its independence, and challenge the the so-called right, the right that the United States has abrogated to itself, to determine the course of events in every single part of the planet. And it's so rare when the U.S. actually is forced out of one of these countries. The U.S. has now, quote, left Afghanistan. But the United States is still in the Philippines. There was a mass movement demanding that Subic Bay and Clark Air Base, the two largest U.S. military installations in the world, be closed down because they were a site of criminality. I mean, you know, so many crimes committed by American personnel in the Philippines and the impact on Filipino girls and women in terms of the sort of huge industry, the sex trade that was created to service American military personnel, the Filipino People drove those American bases out, but they're back. They're back. And look at Cuba. Talk about Cuba. Why is the U.S. in Guantanamo? The U.S. seized Guantanamo in 1898. The Cubans don't want the U.S. to be in Guantanamo. It's the only place in Cuba where people are tortured. Uh, that's the part that America controls. They don't leave South Korea. They haven't left Japan. They, even have, they haven't left Germany. I mean, the U.S. military bases, these 800 installations, a lot of them are from where the U.S. has already occupied and dominated the country. And when you think about, again, enforced or forced ignorance, we just, you know, we had a show about Colin Powell dying, and then there was all those tributes on the mass media, and people were supposed to learn what a great pioneer he was. You know, Millet Massacre, we also talked about that. I'm looking at the Los Angeles Times Weeks after U.S. troops killed as many as 500 unarmed South Vietnamese civilians, 500, they went in and that was 24 hours of nonstop killing babies. They smashed their heads in. They bayoneted them. I mean, it was like one of the most obscene, gross massacres in human history, probably ever. 
Colin Powell was tapped to investigate general allegations in a soldier's letter that described rumors of fellow troops regularly engaging in atrocities. Powell probed the accusations and concluded, quote, although there may be isolated cases of mistreatment of civilians and POWs, these are his words, this by no means reflects the general attitude throughout the division. Quote, in direct refutation of this portrayal is the fact that relations between American soldiers and the Vietnamese people are excellent. I mean, and now these are our heroes, and it's not just Colin Powell. You can go through every, every single military leader, and, you know, if you, it's Korea. By the way, the Associated Press in 2000, 2001 went over how many hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed in South Korea by the Sigmund Rhee government backed by the United States imposed on the South Korean people in 1945. And then the U.S. position in world in the Korean War was that if you came into a village in North Korea, you had to assume everyone, including little kids, could be the enemy because, of course, some of them were the enemy because they didn't want their village to be burned down by the American troops. So the U.S. solution was to was to kill everyone. I've been in North Korea. I've been to those villages like Sinchan, where everyone was put into a cellar. Everyone who was still surviving put into a cellar and they dropped gasoline in it and set it on fire. Mm. Only four people survived. And I met one of the survivors. She was at the time three or four years old. She's one of the few survivors. That's a museum in North Korea. People come from all over North Korea to Sinchan to see what the U.S. actually did. But again, this enforced ignorance for the American people and, again, the media. If you talked in the mainstream media the way we're talking, you would lose your job. Absolutely. I I wanted to follow up on something that Nicole said in terms of the cover-up because that we know from the reporting, the few reporters who were on the ground, independent reporters in Syria, that ISIS was allowed to basically flourish as long as they were kind of in league with the Al-Qaeda groups that we were supporting. They were allowed to flourish as long as they could be useful, as long as they were gaining ground against the Assad government. We have reporting from colleagues at the Gray Zone about how even chemical attacks were faked. And the U.S. to this day is not listening to or is ignoring the actual reports of scientists who went to these places like Duma and said that, no, there were no chemical attacks that were used to justify us bombing Syria and hurting Syrian people. People are forgetting about the Battle of Aleppo and how the United States was backing these really terrorist groups to go in. And who died in Aleppo? The Syrian people died in Aleppo. And then finally, with this latest attack, the fact that they went back and bulldozed this site and buried people, buried the bodies, tried to eliminate the evidence, but you can't eliminate the evidence of like that. Cause when you go to a site, just the evidence of corpses rotting will still be evident. And just the idea that they tried to do this, it was almost like what they tried to do in Raqqa and how they went and they killed all those people in Raqqa and just the corpses were just left in the buildings to rot. And so this is just the latest episode of what the U.S. has done, the latest war crime of the U.S. and Syria. Well, they call it the liberation of Raqqa. This is what liberation <laughs> looks like with the United States. In 2019, according to the Pentagon's own statistics, 
the U.S. dropped 4,727 other bombs on the people of Syria and Iraq. 4,000, I mean, again, think about what the American people experienced on September 11th when two planes hit the two towers in the World Trade Center and another plane hit the Pentagon. And, you know, that was, you know, two or 3,000 people in this one military strike in the grief and the rage and the anger and the mourning. But here's the U.S. 2019, 4,729 bombs and missiles. And we talked in the past about Afghanistan. In 2019, 2020, the U.S. dropped 15,000 bombs and missiles on Afghanistan before leaving. That was the farewell to the people of Afghanistan. Anyway, uh, we can't ever ignore U.S. imperialism, the government that speaks in our name, that tries to keep the American people ignorant about its criminal actions. And, you know, there's that old cliche that patriotism is the last refuge of scoundrels. Well, in this case, patriotism is not, you know, the love of the country in general. It's a way of binding people to the government and to pursue the government's policies or to endorse the government's policies. The last thing that the working class and poor people in the United States need is to be bound together by a government that says there's no money to finance expanded family leave or, you know, a higher minimum wage or all the other things that are being decimated right now that were part of the Build Back Better plan in Congress. But yeah, we can spend, you know, what is it? Almost a trillion dollars each year for this kind of activity. Trillion dollars a year on war. Walter, given that, I mean, right now, the U.S. Congress just got it together to unite around the military budget. Yeah, that's right. It's it's too controversial. It's too hard for them to agree on allowing parents to feed their kids with $200 checks every month or it's too controversial for them to decide that if you have a kid and you need to stay home from work to take care of them, you shouldn't lose your job or income. It's too controversial for them to truly eliminate student debt or do so many of the other things that they have a clear mandate from the people to do and was actually on the table, actually on the table in Congress. So they've decided to put that to the side for now and focus on something that they know they can get done and that's allocating the annual military budget through something called the National Defense Authorization Act. The Senate has a lot on its plate. Um, the part that we've been covering the most because it affects working class people is the social program budget that the Biden administration has been pushing for, uh, but has been essentially gutted because right wing Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema uh, want to. They oppose the most progressive elements of this budget. So there's still a back and forth going on there. There's an effort by some members of the House to reinsert at least four weeks of paid family leave, guaranteed paid family leave into the bill. But while that's working its way through the Senate, when the right wingers in the Democratic Party in the Senate are deciding whether or not they'll accede to that, the Senate wants to at least be productive for their friends in the military industrial complex. And they're looking to focus above all else on passing this National Defense Authorization Act in the coming two weeks. Let's go on to some other stories. We have quite a few, but of course, Kyle Rittenhouse, jury got their instructions yesterday. And then the amazingly racist 
equally racist or maybe even more racist trial for the killers of Ahmed Arbery. Nicole, let's talk about these two trials. Well, let's start with a clip from a defense attorney defending the three white men who killed Ahmed Arbery. This defense attorney is claiming that having black pastors like Al Sharpton in the courtroom was, quote unquote, intimidating to the jury. I'll just remind people, of course, that the jury is 92 percent white. That would be 11 out of 12. That would be 11 out of 12, all, almost an all white jury, despite the fact that the area is about a quarter black and that many people, many black people and possible jurors were struck from the jury pool. Because they said they, the questions that they asked. Have you been to a Black Lives Matter protest? Yeah, it shows you have bias. Or, you, or have, have you experienced racism? Have you experienced racism? Yeah, and when you look at the Confederate flag, do you associate that with racism? If they said yes, that would be a sign of bias. Right. Now, why wouldn't, you know, <laughs> not seeing racism in the Confederate flag be like a clear indicator of bias anyway? Yes, all of that. I agree with all of that. So let me go ahead and play that. Here it goes. My understanding while I was cross-examining Investigator Lowry yesterday is that the right Reverend Al Sharpton managed to find his way into the back of the courtroom. I'm guessing he was somehow there at the invitation of the victim's family in this case. And I have nothing personally against Mr. Sharpton. My concern is that it's one thing for the family to be present. It's another thing to ask for the lawyers to be present. But if we're going to start a precedent starting yesterday, we're going to bring high profile members of the African-American community into the courtroom to sit with the family during the trial in the presence of the jury. I believe that's intimidating and it's an attempt to pressure, could be consciously or unconsciously, an attempt to, to pressure or influence the jury. Obviously, there's only so many pastors they can have. And if their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in, was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family trying to influence a jury in this case. Quote, we don't want any more black pastors coming in here. Just white pastors. Trying to influence the jury. It, I mean, it's obvious on its face. It's completely nonsense. But even if you're taking his argument like, what do you mean you can only have one pastor? What are you talking Reverend about? William like Barber, <laughs> Reverend William Barber was there also from the Poor People's Campaign. And he, he went through and has explained, you know, how this is typical and an indicator of this kind of standard racism. Exactly. Where if you're black, you're, quote, intimidating. And I heard Reverend Barber on the radio talking about this. He said, what we have to do is continue to build multinational, multiracial unity to demand justice for Ahmed Arbery. And he also made the point, he said, when those, quote, black pastors went out, most of the people who were praying with them and rallying with them were actually white people. They had black and white people. But this is obviously done before a racist or what they hope will be a racist jury and make this clearly not about the killers and their crimes, but about something else entirely. Well, and the whole point, I mean, his argument is actually the argument, really what's at play here. When you're talking about two, well, four, I guess, white men saying they engaged in self-defense when they're the ones with the guns and they're the ones chasing people down. The it. only reason that that would be self-defense is if black people are automatically intimidating. If we're believing in that trope, if that trope is real, then that's when it's self-defense. But that's obviously nonsense. Like that's obviously racist nonsense that comes from a long, long line of this insane trope. 
So the fact that the judge lets this man stand up and say this, I mean, that's the exact issue at play. And so this is the same judge that allowed this lopsided jury to be seated in the first place, exactly. right? And I, I know that you're also talking about Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And in that trial, you know, we had happened last week where that judge may require the jury and those people in the courthouse applaud a defense witness who was going to testify on behalf of Kyle Rittenhouse because he was a veteran. As an expert witness, because yeah. they said it's Veterans Day and the judge said, everybody here, is there anybody a veteran here knowing that this guy, the expert witness for Kyle Rittenhouse is a veteran? And he says, everybody, let's applaud. He's, he requires the courtroom to applaud for Rittenhouse's defense expert testimony right. lawyer. So so what's more intimidating? What's what's more influencing of the jury requiring requiring the jury to applaud mm -hmm. this defense witness, you know? So I just think we need to compare those things. Right. I mean the message you're sending if you're requiring people to applaud is like this is how the judge thinks. This is how the judge feels. And the judge also threw out one of the charges that Rittenhouse was facing, the gun charge. So, I mean, he was 17 years old. He had an AR-style rifle with him. That is illegal. Like, you're not allowed to do that as a minor. And so there is a technicality in the law that the defense lawyers pointed out. And on the basis of this technicality, the judge threw out what was considered to be like the most obvious slam dunk conviction that they had against him because it's it's just a matter of course, like, yes, he was carrying this rifle that state law says you're not allowed to carry, but he's now off the hook for that. In most states, this is one of the, the most charged crimes. This is one of the most charged things that people go away to prison for. I mean, this can be a felony, possession of a weapon. It can be a felony. This is something people get charged with and, you know, intimidated out of having their own jury trial because of these long sentences with constantly day in and day out. How does this guy who committed murder get away with this charge he being traveled, dropped? He traveled long distances to come and shoot people. He came to another place, to another city in Kenosha, where people were protesting the disgusting shooting of Jacob Blake. He came there with his automatic weapon, with his AR automatic weapon. That he had stored at a friend's house because he knew he wasn't allowed to have it. And Nicole, when he got there, the same cops were welcoming him. Yeah, they were welcoming him. And I'm, I'm going to play a clip of police in an armored tank vehicle who were pulling up after the murders happened they were on a loudspeaker. They pulled up to Kyle Rittenhouse and the other armed white supremacists he was with, and the police thanked them. Hey, thank you, guys. Need water? There's a gun for our right. We need water. We need water. We'll throw you one. Thank you. All right, come on, guys. Let's get out of here. Damn. We're all here. Let's go get a couple. Thank you. We got a couple. We got to save a couple, but we'll give you a couple. We appreciate you guys. We really do. We appreciate you guys. We really do. This is, again, after the shooting. So at this point, closing arguments were yesterday in the trial, and the jury first needs to decide whether this was self-defense, which I think, as we were talking about earlier, this is the case. You know, this is a big argument in both of these cases, in the Arbery murder and in Rittenhouse murdering two people, whether this somehow is self-defense when you're walking around with guns, Kyle Rittenhouse walking around with an AR-15 and being able to quote unquote defend yourself from people who are running or protesting. Or you know what? Here's another piece to it. 
So you're a fascist. You're a young little fascist, and you come long distance to shoot anti-racist protesters in another city, and you've shot one of them dead, and then other people are trying to stop you from shooting other people, and then those people, according to the defense argument, have become a threat to the shooter. So he is now justified shooting them as well. This is the essence of his argument. Yeah. If you try to disarm me and try to stop me, even though I have an illegal weapon and have just shot somebody and killed them, I now have the right to defend myself. What they're doing is what they did in the case of Rodney King in terms of presenting this freeze frame. That's right. Um, of breaking down what happened into these individual frames to make it look like these people were a threat to him when he was the one with the AR-15. And another interesting thing is the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse's mother drove him there. And that is bad enough. I mean, if a black mother had driven her son across state lines with an illegal weapon and he committed some violence there, you better believe she would be charged right along with him, especially if he had like killed some white people, right? But in addition to- And she'd lose custody too. Right. And this is happening at the same time, and I don't want us, us to get way off, but I can't help but draw the comparison to a case that's not really getting a lot of attention. There is a mother in East St. Louis, uh, Sabrina Dunnigan. She's 34, and she's been charged with five counts of endangering the life and health of a child because her five children died in a fire. And... This woman has lost everything at this point, but she's been charged in the death of her own children saying that she left them unattended, but she actually left them there with her parents. Her parents fell asleep and, you know, this happened at like four in the morning or something like people were asleep and she's been charged in this and she's facing these types of charges where Kyle Rittenhouse's mother, I don't even know his mother's name, no. right? But she drove her child across state lines with an illegal weapon, and we haven't heard boo about this woman. No, no, we haven't. I just want to go through some of the charges he's facing. He's facing first-degree intentional homicide because he killed a 26-year-old. He's facing first-degree reckless homicide for killing a 36-year-old. And when he killed the 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum, he... Also, in that moment, he fired four rounds in less than a second. And those rounds also went in the direction of two others. So he's charged with two counts of first degree reckless endangerment. But four rounds in less than a second. I mean, that's spraying wildly into a crowd. Like, that's criminal. It's disgusting. I don't know what else to call it. Didn't it come out in some of the trial that some of those shots were into the back of one of these victims? So the person's actually turned away, maybe trying to get away, and he's still shooting. Right. Yeah, one of the shots was to the back. One of the shots was to the back. I mean, how is that self-defense? Right. And then there's a couple other really important pieces in the Arbery trial that I want listeners to hear about, especially because I know, you know, there's a lot going on in these and it's hard to keep up. But, you know, according to body cam transcriptions that were read in the trial yesterday, William, so this is in the Arbery trial, in the trial of William Bryan and the two McMichaels, Travis and Gregory McMichaels. So Brian told the cop who came by, Ricky Menchu, who's now a former cop, that Brian blocked Arbery with his truck five times. So again, we're talking about this self-defense idea where you're the one who's armed and you're the one blocking someone who's trying to get away and yet you're arguing self-defense. I mean, this is crazy. When you say blocking, that means that like, 
like almost like running him off the road as he's trying to jog. Right. And trying to get away from somebody who's waving a pistol at you. So Brian said at the time, quote, this was at the time uh, the scene of the crime. He said, quote, should I have been chasing him? I don't know. He was trying to get in my truck. He tried to get in my door. When I rounded the corner out there, it was almost like the black guy was tired of running, unquote. Minshew also testified, that's the former cop, that Brian told him he felt like he was going to be, quote, thrown through the damn windshield trying to chase this joker, unquote, because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So this is not self-defense. This is a guy who's chasing this man down. Of course, he also never mentioned making any sort of citizen's arrest to the cop. They're looking at the body cam transcriptions, never mentions that. Then Travis McMichael, who is the one who actually shot and killed Arbery, although they were all, all three were involved, According to more of these transcriptions from last week, Travis's dad, Gregory McMichael, said at the scene, quote, to be perfectly honest with you, if I could have gotten a shot at the guy, I'd have shot him myself, unquote. He also called Arbery, who at this point was dead, laying on the ground, called him, quote, an asshole. Hours after the killing, the elder McMichael, that's Gregory, a former cop, also told police in a formal statement that during the assault, he yelled at Arbery, quote, Stop, you know, I'll blow your effing head off or something. I was trying to convey to this guy we were not playing, unquote. He also said the reason he confronted Arbery was that he thought he had stolen his son Travis's gun from his car several months prior. He doesn't know Arbery. It's not based on knowing this person. This was only based on having him, having seen him look at the construction site. That is the reason that they chased him down. He never mentioned a quote unquote citizen's arrest. And they, right. the reason we're able to see the images here is that as Ahmed Arbery was trying to escape, they were actually filming it. Filming it because they clearly didn't see this as a crime. If you're feeling threatened, you don't say, hey, like you're running away from somebody who's like, let me get this on. Let no, me get no, this on you're too. trying to get away. But they weren't trying to get away. They were hunting. They were hunting this man down. They were lynching him and they were filming it. Right. And this, I just, I cannot get over that these self-defense arguments because this logic, like you were saying, Brian, gives anybody with a gun the right to kill anybody as long as they try to get the gun out of the shooter's hands or otherwise defend themselves. But how can self-defense be shooting a runner or spraying four rounds from an AR-15 into a crowd of protesters? How can that be self-defense? Let's go into another story. COP26, the Conference of Parties on the 26th anniversary of when they started. This took place in Scotland. I was noticing the Washington Post headline and sub-headline, and I was really struck by how wrong they were. Again, Esther, Washington Post. Here's the headline, Sunday. Big, across the whole newspaper. Nation strike deal to speed climate action. Wow, they did it. Then the subtitle. Pact falls short of warming limit. Uh, yeah, the headline <laughs> is that they move quickly to have a climate action deal. And the subheadline is, but actually they didn't accomplish the goal. No, they didn't accomplish the goal. They were never going to accomplish the goal. Biden was condemning Xi Jinping for not showing up. He said, you know, China has missed a great opportunity. And Biden, you know, as we talked about in the past weeks, the, the Post also said, he was ready to lead the globe on climate change, and yet he capitulated to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, the other extremist Democrats, extreme you know tools of Wall Street and you know the big coal companies and big oil, and took out even this modest measure to somewhat mitigate climate 
change or global warming in the United States from his own legislation. Anyway, we have some audio. Abby Martin, our friend from Empire Files, journalist Abby Martin confronted Nancy Pelosi. But Esther, let's get started. Uh, again, a lot of words. There was action, but it wasn't inside the hall. All right. Well, I think that the main thing to know is that the climate summit it wrapped up on Saturday in Glasgow and there was a significantly weakened deal than what they even had maybe a day before. But why it was weakened and how that's being reported is really important. So in corporate media, they'll say that, you know, many activists are blaming China and India for weakening the final draft to change language from phasing out coal to phasing down coal. But the truth is that the biggest disappointment for the majority of the people the earth represented there was the fact that the rich countries, the capitalist countries are still refusing to compensate. These rich countries are the historic emitters of 70% of the greenhouse gases that are in the world right now. And that they are failing to pay to mitigate the severe impacts on the global South. So I should also say that unlike what was happening inside the cop outside, this cop had this tremendous focus on on history, on the fact that many of the countries experiencing the worst impacts of climate change right now are countries that were formerly colonized by these same capitalist countries. And so this is Assad Raymond. He's addressing the closing plenary on behalf of the COP26 coalition. And this coalition is the group that organized last weekend's major climate justice rallies that we talked about last week with like upwards of 100,000 people in the street. I saw 150,000 actually. So, they, so Esther, just to be clear before we hear the audio clip. So he's representing the demonstrators outside the conference organizers at the last moment said, okay, come in. We're going to let you, the people outside protesting us also speak. Address right? the plenary. Yeah. Closing plenary. Right. I'm finding it difficult to convey our anger and frustration at this utter betrayal of people. Hollow words about climate emergency from the richest countries, an utter disregard about, of the science and equity, false ambition and disdain for justice, a license to pollute with net zero 2050 and carbon markets. You have made decisions, as one party acknowledged, decisions about life and death for millions. Yet 500 years of colonial rule and white supremacy, looting the wealth of the global south, and you still value your profits over the lives of black, brown and indigenous people. The rich have refused to do their fair share. More empty words on climate finance. You've turned your backs on the poorest who face a crisis of COVID, economic and climate apartheid because of the actions of the richest. It's immoral for the rich to talk about their future children and grandchildren when the children of the global south are dying now. We needed concrete solidarity and cooperation. The rich offered more empty words. You're not keeping 1.5 alive. You're setting us on a pathway to two and a half degrees. You're setting the planet on fire and claiming to act. Your greenwashing kills, and no amount of spinning will mask that. But we are not without hope. It just will not rest with you, but with us, and we don't compromise on justice. Mm. All right, so that's Assad Raymond of the COP26 coalition addressing the closing plenary. And I should also say that another issue that you'll see not really discussed in corporate media is the fact that India, for example, even offered what would be a stronger final agreement 
point. And that is the fact that in addition to phasing out or phasing down coal, that oil and gas should also be phased down or phased out. But by the cop eliminating discussion of oil and gas, they let the U.S. off the hook. They let Europe off the hook. They're able to focus just on India and China in a more industrial phase of their economies. So the spin that you'll hear from the corporate media is really giving less than half the story that in addition to the capitalist countries not uh, putting forth the funds that are needed to mitigate the tremendous damage from climate change, they're also not focusing on oil and gas. As a matter of fact, and you know that Biden, what, right before this agreement was inked, you know, opened up a whole new wave of off-coast oil drilling here in the United States. In the Gulf of Mexico. Right. It just adds, you know, more proof of the hypocrisy. Yeah. So we have an audio clip from Abby Martin, Empire Files. She was there along with Mike Preisner. They're making an important new documentary about climate catastrophe. Anyway, Nicole, it's kind of funny. Nancy Pelosi couldn't really see who she was calling on, but she said, well, you know, I... Let's have a woman speak. Let's I want to get a question from a woman. Then somebody must have passed her a note when they realized it was Abby Martin. She had called on. Anyway, it's kind of a funny clip. It's funny in that way. And it's also important to hear how Abby poses the question. It's a it's a question about the role of the Pentagon, you know, the biggest single emitter of carbon emissions in the world. There are 100 capitalist corporations that emit 71 percent of the carbon emissions in the world. 100 capitalist corporations, 71 percent. But the biggest emitter of oil, of course, is the Pentagon. You hear Abby ask the question, then this other guy jumps in. Look, you'll hear it for yourself. It's a complete, it's gibberish. But to add on some with some additional gibberish, Nancy Pelosi then takes the floor. Let's listen to Abby Martin. <laughs> additional gibberish. Wait a minute, wait, I want a woman. I want a woman. A woman. A woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gender equality here. Uh, Maybe I don't, let's see. <laughs> Abby Martin with the Empire Files. Speaker Pelosi, you just presided over a, a large increase in the Pentagon budget. This Pentagon budget is already massive. The Pentagon is a larger polluter than 140 countries combined. How can we seriously talk about net zero if there is this bipartisan consensus to constantly expand this large contributor to climate change, which is exempt from these conferences? Military is exempt from climate talks. Well, I, I just want to use an example, if I can. Um, you know the sea level rise is an important part of, uh, you know, what's happening to the climate. And I am not a defense person, but I've had so many talks with the Defense Department, with the Navy in particular, about how they have to respond to what's going on. So I really do think that there is no reason why what we're putting together, you know, uh, with Build Back Better and other things can't respond to the Defense Department and, and, and have the same impact in terms of reducing emissions. And I do think that the Defense Department is very much aware of the fact that they have to play a major role, both from a strategic as well as, you know, for the good of the world. So I don't see what we're doing in any way or, you know, increasing the defense budget as being something that's inconsistent with climate action. I really don't. And may I just add that um, the National Security Advisors all tell us that the climate crisis is a national security matter. 
Uh, it is, of course, a health matter for our children, the water they drink, the air they breathe, etc. It is a jobs issue between clean, good, clean technologies uh, being the future of our workforce and the training for all of that. It is a national security issue because of the, uh, uh, all of the con conditions that climate crisis produces. I won't go into all of them, but they do ca are cause for migration, conflict over habitat and resources, and again, uh, a security challenge. I think, I think Abby Martin was saying to Nancy Pelosi, the Pentagon is culpable for and responsible for the climate catastrophe. And Nancy Pelosi, again, with just more gibberish, responds as, oh no, the Pentagon is fully aware that this is a national security problem, meaning a justification for more money for the Pentagon. Oh yeah. Because, you know, if people, 60 million migrants coming from around the world, 60 million people on the move more than any other time since World War II, many of them coming because of climate catastrophe. What we need is the military. Let's get ready, let's get more bombs. Get more missiles because, yeah, the Pentagon's well aware that this is going to pose new security challenges. Again, I'm so happy that Abby was able to get there and ask the question. But again, when you hear Nancy Pelosi and that other guy speak, you, you have to come to the conclusion that there's no possible way, even if there was will and desire for these people to do anything meaningful about climate catastrophe. But of course, they don't have a will or a desire to do anything about it. It's all just BS. And the man who was speaking, by the way, was Congressman Frank Pallone, who's a Democrat from New Jersey. And I do encourage listeners to look at the video of this because it's very fun to watch Nancy Pelosi fiddle with her scarf a lot <laughs> while the question is being asked. And the, and the congressman is saying, like, I don't see why increasing the defense budget, again, with the biggest polluter in the world, has any problem for climate action. If he can't see that, I just think we need smarter people in office, you know, like if that if that's so hard to see. Yeah, You're see, this the right is the place. question. Is it a problem of of intelligence, Walter, or are they just stooges of capitalist corporations or, as Nicole is suggesting, maybe both? <laughs> well, well, you know, Pallone, he, so he was the guy who was saying, like, well, I'm not a defense person, right? Well, I'm not a defense person. So one, obviously, he is a defense person in the fact that he had this, like, ready-made line to excuse the military of all responsibility for climate change. But the fact that, you know, there it is sort of like an in thing among congressmen to be like, oh, this guy's a defense person. I'm not a defense person. That guy's a defense person. That means there is a subset of people in Congress who are, like, nothing but empty vessels for the lobbyists of the military-industrial complex to get money out of, essentially. And can we stop using the word defense? I mean, again, like what <laughs> was the U.S. doing killing all of those women and their children in Syria? That was part of the defense budget. Mm -hmm. Everything is part of the defense Military. budget. It's, it's like calling Joe Manchin a moderate. I mean, yeah, it's exactly like calling Manchin a moderate or Joe Biden a moderate. An additional part of the government spending is more, quote unquote, defense with the CIA which is not part of the defense budget, even more money that we could be using on other things, which has been doing all kinds of things over in Cuba, especially yesterday. Brian, what's been going on there? Well, and again, this and we have a we have a clip from Gloria Lariva as well. Yeah, Gloria's in Cuba right now. The Cuba caravan from Pastors for Peace is there. A lot of people are there. There's demonstrations all over the country yesterday in solidarity with the people of Cuba, demanding that the U.S. end the blockade of Cuba, the blockade that has existed since 1961. 
ever since the U.S. failed in its invasion of Cuba, the Bay of Pigs invasion. The U.S. invaded Cuba, but because Cuba defeated the invasion, the U.S. imposed coercive economic measures, the blockade. For a long time, it was illegal to even travel to Cuba, the way it's illegal now for Americans to travel to North Korea, by the way. You, you're living in the free world, and in the free world, you must stay. But <laughs> the blockade of Cuba... It's really been bad over all of these decades, Democrats, Republicans, but Trump made it a lot worse. I mean, we all know in 2014, Barack Obama allowed through negotiations that the Cuban five, the five heroes of Cuba who had infiltrated counter-revolutionary organizations in Miami, those people, those Cuban five had been in prison for many, many years. They were released. Some American operatives were also released from Cuban jails. And the U.S. and Cuba opened embassies in their respective capital cities. So I was at the embassy when it opened in 2014. I don't know if you were there, Esther, but it was a big deal. For the first time in 54 years, the Cuban embassy was reopening in Washington. And likewise, in Havana, a U.S. embassy was open. But then Donald Trump became president of the United States he introduced 243 new coercive measures, 243 more sanctions on Cuba on top of the blockade, and economic life in Cuba became very, very hard. Then COVID hit, and tourism, which Cuba reintroduced in a big way after the fall of the Soviet Union when the socialist bloc countries collapsed or were no more, and Cuba lost all of its trading partners in Eastern and Central Europe and in the USSR, the Cubans had to resort to some way to get hard currency. They let tourism resume and tourism became a major part of Cuba's income. Then COVID hit. So you have 243 new sanctions on top of the blockade. COVID means tourists can't come to Cuba. Economic suffering for the Cuban people becomes worse and worse. Food lines get longer. People lose electricity even in summer when they want air conditioning. I mean, it's really hard in Cuba. So seeing how hard it is, the CIA, the National Endowment for Democracy, USAID funded this whole network of nonprofit organizations, non-governmental organizations to carry out regime change operations in Cuba. And that's been going on for the last few months. I mean, July 11th was a day then the American government has been saying openly, including its State Department briefings, that the U.S. was going to support these demonstrations in Cuba. Again, suddenly the U.S. government loves protest as long as it's against a government that the U.S. is strangling. And suddenly the U.S. loves democracy and freedom as long as it's somewhere else, not, not in Kenosha and not in Georgia. Suddenly the United States is the great champions for, for the underdog. Well, anyway, the Cuban government exposed many of these operations for what they are, that they weren't organic, they weren't spontaneous, they weren't the reflection of the Cuban people. They were, in fact, a destabilization campaign, very much like what the U.S. did in Iran in 1953 or Guatemala in 1954 or against the socialist government in Chile of Salvador Allende that culminated in counter-revolution there on September 11, 1973. And the Cuban people, in spite of the hardships that they face, and obviously there's a lot of discontent when you have this level of economic suffering now, the Cuban people 
in the main, are not abandoning their revolution. And it became very clear in the last few days the Cuban government was going on TV every night, exposing the so-called leaders of the, of the protest movement that was supposed to materialize yesterday as nothing other than operatives for terrorist organizations located and funded abroad, especially by the United States. And the reason the U.S. government chose November 15th is that was the day that Cuba was reopening to tourism. Monday, November 15th, was when the Cubans were reopening to tourism. And why could they reopen to tourism? Cuba developed its own vaccines. This little island country of 11 million people that's noted all around the world for sending doctors and nurses to other poor countries to help They developed their own vaccines in spite of the blockade, and they vaccinated the entire population. Everyone two years old and up has now been vaccinated in Cuba by an indigenous vaccine, like a remarkable technological effort, which would have been impossible. You know, Haiti could not have done it. The Dominican Republic could not have done it. Barbados could not have done it. Cuba did it because it had a revolution, and that revolution still stands. So, we had a, an audio clip, Nicole, from Gloria. I think you were able to speak to Gloria a little bit, but she was there in the streets of Havana and again saying, look, the people who stand with the revolution were out, not the people who were being mobilized by the CIA, NED, and USAID. Yeah, here's Gloria Lariva, who's still in Cuba, but was most importantly there yesterday during what was supposed to be this huge day of protest, which turned out not to be. I'm here in Havana today, Monday, November 15, 2 p.m., where the streets of the city are completely calm. There's no sign of protest by Junior Garcia nor his group Archipelago. Instead, what took place was several hundred thousand primary school kids starting school in person. It's a huge victory for the Cuban, Cuban families who proudly walked their kids and grandchildren to the school door, kiss them goodbye because of COVID restrictions, only the kids and teachers can enter the school, but all are vaccinated. The other event that was much touted by the U.S. media, the supposed march of thousands called by Junior Garcia is not happening. In reality, in the last weeks, he has become completely deflated. The media, the television, radio in Cuba has exposed his links to terrorists, very notorious terrorists in Miami. And so he has lost a lot of his uh, credibility. I was in Ciudad Libertad, the former military headquarters of the dictator Fulgencio Batista, now a major school complex this morning, where President Díaz-Canel spoke to an audience of children, celebrating the almost complete vaccination of the population and the great lowering of COVID cases. You know, the basis for the demonstrations on July 11 that the CIA thought they could take advantage of the crisis where thousands literally of positive cases of COVID were presenting every day. That basis is gone now because in the month of October, due to the massive vaccination, the numbers have gone greatly, greatly down every day to where being less than 400 positive cases and For example, Saturday, November 13, nobody died of COVID that day. Uh, People are feeling a great spirit of hope. Today, the tourism is starting. The plane flights from other countries are opening up. 
hotels are being built and current hotels are opening. Uh, there's still a lot of difficulty, long lines for you know, meat for people to buy. Nobody's starving in Cuba, but what people would like to have isn't always there for sure. And yet the massive vaccination and the proof that that was the key to overcoming COVID, vaccination, social distancing, and the knowledge that people don't get evicted from the home, um, these kind of things mean that that's the way to solve the crisis. All right. That was Gloria Lariva. She was talking to us from Havana. Um, let's go on to another topic. There was a virtual meeting yesterday, Walter, between the Chinese President Xi Jinping and the U.S. President Joe Biden. One thing I want to say about it is I was looking at an article written by the Washington Post about this meeting and it comes, you know, after there was this, what was called in the U.S. media, including the Washington Post, a surprise announcement that China and the U.S. were going to do something together, something in cooperation with each other on climate. And so this meeting takes place right after that, Walter. So there's this Washington Post article about the meeting. It came out a couple of days ago. You get to the fourth paragraph from the bottom of the article, and here's what it says. The senior administration official, again, of course, speaking on conditions of anonymity, is it Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, or Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor? We don't know. But obviously, they called the Washington Post. They wanted the story. They were explaining what this meeting is going to be about between President Xi and Joe Biden. So all the way towards the end of the article, fourth paragraph, it says, the senior administration official said on Friday that the virtual summit is not expected to produce specific outcomes, but rather will set the, quote, terms of an effective competition where we are in the position to defend our values in interests of those of our allies and partners. Then the article goes on to talk about how China has become a threat to the self-governing island of Taiwan. And the question is, when Joe Biden said that the U.S. will defend Taiwan militarily if attacked, and of course, you know, abrogating the foundational understanding by the United States in the Shanghai Communique of 1972 that Taiwan is indeed part of China, uh, Biden then corrected himself, said, no, well, it wasn't Biden, one of his aides said, no, it's not a new position that we will defend Taiwan in the event of a military conflict, meaning we will go start World War III, but we will maintain our position of strategic ambiguity. And I know working class people all over the United States were saying, wow, I'm so glad we're maintaining our position of strategic ambiguity. <laughs> Walter, maybe you can help us. It's completely ridiculous, completely ridiculous. How do they try to sell all these sort of obscure priorities of the U.S. war machine in East Asia as though they were, you know, just the most important thing impacting the lives of people here in the United States. But, I mean, it, it could end up being something that's deeply impactful to people in the United States if this turns into World War III. I mean, if the Pentagon succeeds in pushing China into a position where it's engaged in a war with the United States. And it seems like if you add it all together, if you add up all of the naval exercises that the United States carries out, 
close to the Chinese mainland. If you take into consideration all of the military bases that are ringing the area around China, especially in South Korea, in Japan, in Guam, the U.S. military bases, if you if you consider how the United States flies warplanes, some of which are capable of carrying nuclear weapons near Chinese positions, yeah, I mean, I think that China could realistically come to the conclusion that the United States might provoke a war. And so I think, you know, that's Xi's motivation for having this meeting with Biden. Like, is there something we can do to turn down the temperature even just a little bit so that the likelihood of an accidental escalation to an all-out military conflict can be at least reduced? I think what the Biden administration people are saying when they talk about, you know, setting the terms of the competition, you know, controlling the terms of the competition, they're saying, well, we, we want to overthrow China's government. We would prefer to do it like we overthrew the government of the Soviet Union, which did not involve a thermonuclear war. But they're leaving that option on the table. They're leaving, quote unquote, all options on the table. And so for that reason, because that fundamentally hostile posture adopted by the United States towards China remains in place, there was no breakthrough in the meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. And I don't think anybody expected that to be the case. And just so people, you know, as we move to our last story, just so people know some of the some of the facts they're not unimportant facts actually could matter here taiwan is part of china it was seized by japan in 1895 the japanese colonial empire seized a part of china i read in the post it's a self-governing island brian it's a self-governing island 1895 to 1945 Taiwan was seized by japanese colonialism and then japan was defeated at the end of world war 2 and then the whole world recognized that Taiwan was returning to China. And it did return to China. But between 1945 and 1949, there was a civil war. And the Communist Party led forces, the forces led by Mao, won the war. And then the defeated Chiang Kai-shek stooges of Western imperialism got in ships and boats and sailed to Taiwan and created a military dictatorship there. They suppressed the indigenous Taiwanese who hated them. And then, you know, the United States said, oh, the government that went to Taiwan is now the officially recognized government of China and seated it at the United Nations in 1949. And it retained its seat in the United Nations until 1971. And when the, when the resolution was introduced by Albania, which at that time was a socialist country, to allow the People's Republic of China, representing one quarter of the human race, to take its rightful seat at the UN, including at the UN Security Council, the US voted no. The US still voted no. And, you know, by the way, when that passed, the entire General Assembly, which actually represents the countries of the world, erupted into this spontaneous party and ovation and celebration that China was coming back into the UN. But Taiwan was never independent. And so here we have it that the United States government is telling the American people, hey, workers in the United States, yes, we've decided we can't fund extended family leave. We're not really committed to extended child care credits. We couldn't raise your minimum wage, you know, which hasn't been increased since 2009. We don't have the funds for all of that, but we are spending about $100 billion each year to maintain strategic ambiguity. And you, the American workers, should get ready because we might have to go to war 
over Taiwan. I mean, like workers in the United States, young people in the United States have to reject this imperialist jingoism and war propaganda. There's nothing ambiguous about it. It's only and purely for the interests of imperialism. And we have to reject that. But that's all defense, right? Yes. Thank Start, you. The thank U.S. You, starting a war with China, that's still defense, right? For Taiwan, which is part of China, has been part of China since the 1600s okay. or 16th century. That's the U.S. defending itself. That's more defense. Great. Never forget that. None of us should forget that this is for defense. <laughs> All right. I want to turn back to the home front. Of course, the international front is the home front in the United States because the defense budget as Martin Luther King said about Vietnam, every bomb dropped there is, you know, really bursting in the inner cities of the United States. You can't have a war for imperialism in Southeast Asia and a war against poverty at home. So, you know, the foreign policy and domestic policy are, are in many ways very connected, in many ways one and the same. But, you know, the other thing about militarism, Esther, is that militarism breeds reaction. And the most, you know, significant manifestation of reaction is fascism and you know imperialism war white racism white supremacy fascism very tightly connected and there is the rising as we've been talking about a rising danger through the white supremacist movement of fascism in the united states well you know just like you were talking about the united states really not recognizing the real history of china of taiwan and the sovereignty of the latest target of u.s imperialism you know there are a lot of stories in the news that we can kind of put under the same kind of header you know and for me and that's despite the history of, in this country of legalized genocide slavery and jim crow apartheid there's this vocal large portion of the white people in the United States that are educated and informed by media to believe that racism is not systemic and institutionalized here. And this portion of the population, often with financial backing from the far right, will push back and dominate, you know, right wing media space and have this impact that is much greater than their actual numbers. Right. And therefore impact the debate about what's happening in the, the country, especially as we've seen when it comes to what is taught in schools. So a Sunday New York Times article that we read beforehand, you know, details the effort in recent years in Loudoun County, Virginia, to address racism within its public schools, including black children routinely called the N-word there. And the effort resulted in a series of steps, including a video apologizing for these types of racist insults and attitudes. They changed the mascot of one high school from a Confederate soldier to, you know, something else. And they also developed tools to train teachers about bias. So as the article by Stephanie Saul says, quote, there were rumblings of resistance. Vocal parents protested the district's anti-racism efforts as Marxism, end quote. And as far as the teachers, this is what the article says, quote, some teachers objected to a chart in their training that listed different groups as either experiences privilege or experiences oppression. Christians were privileged, for instance, while non-Christians were oppressed. Monica Gill, an American history teacher at Loudoun County High School, also objected to an animated video called The Unequal Opportunity Race, in which white people get a head start while people of color must wait and then face obstacle after obstacle. The video, she said, was an overgeneralization that itself embraced a racial stereotype. 
Quote, I didn't grow up in white privilege, Ms. Gill said. I worked hard to get through college and it wasn't handed to me by any stretch. It seemed to me that this whole thing they were pushing was very shallow, end quote. So this is what I'm thinking about this. So in, in this post-Obama period we're in, where, which people have conveniently and erroneously referred to as the post-racial society, you know, people look at their own situation, like these teachers looking at their own situation or efforts at affirmative action to redress past harm. And they say, no, there's no racism. No, I was not personally privileged. And then history therefore is erased. I mean, especially since it was not taught in the first place. Right. And, um, these types of hot button issues, we we're seeing these same type of issues in Virginia, along with another erroneous report about a rape involving a transgender student. And we're seeing these types of issues blasted all over right wing media for the past year, and they fueled the so-called parents' rights movement in Virginia. And that led to so many in Loudoun County, the same county voting that voted for Joe Biden and not for Trump, voting for Glenn Youngkin in this past election for governor. And we remember that Glenn Youngkin won after dog whistling about parents' rights to control what is taught in schools. And so, as we've said on previous shows, they want to not teach about what really happened in history. And this led to demonizing the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Beloved by Toni Morrison. And we know, as we've discussed in many in previous shows, that in, for example, Maryland and Texas, this effort to block the teaching of true history is being carried on by lawmakers and leading particularly to black teachers and principals losing their jobs for wanting to teach the truth. But there are two other takeaways for me from this article. One is that this movement to control information and the teaching of history, which is only getting started, I'm, I'm afraid, shows the power of right-wing media to keep twisting facts, twisting history, and sometimes outright lying repeatedly to create stories and narratives to galvanize white people, these white voters, and particularly around issues of race, but also around issues of gender and sexuality. And I know you've seen the stories that last week, just recently, a Spotsylvania school board, also in Virginia, voted to ban books recommended for high school students deemed sexually explicit. And two of the board members advocated burning the books. I saw another story about a, a middle school teacher in California who lost her job actually after she went on a, a rant in the classroom telling people that Trump was still the president, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just really parroting a lot of the kind of really far right nonsense going on. And the other thing that I got from the article is that, you know, the uprising against racism last year after the murder of George Floyd, you know, provided the energy for a lot of the black people, black parents in Virginia to fight back against this historic racism that they've been experiencing in the school board. And that in creating a backlash to efforts to correct the racism, the so-called parents movement puts itself in the opposition to these same parents, insisting that their children not be called the N word or towel head or wet back or whatever racial slur they were routinely called in Virginia in Loudoun County. And, you know, there was no so-called parents rights movement or media frenzy by Fox or New York post or Breitbart or the Federalist to support the rights of parents and students of color. So what we have happening on the local and state level is a development of these ministries of truth, right? Which of course support the opposite of truth and 
they're sometimes instigated by one or a small number of vocal parents on the right. And, you know, this is a form of violence. Right. And it's sweeping the country. We shouldn't minimize it. We don't minimize it. Walter, in the socialist program, we're promoting the idea that the working class has to unite. The question is, how does the working class unite? Does it unite in its own interests as a class against the capitalists for the things that all workers need, regardless of race and nationality? And can you unite the working class in the United States, a society dominated in the way capitalism was developed here, on the premise of white supremacy and the institutions of white supremacy and the enforcement of white supremacy? Can you build unity without putting racism at the very center of the class struggle? Because frankly, there will never be working class unity as long as a part of the white working class or the middle class is in the grips of or under the influence or leadership of fascists who are using racism as the premise for their political mobilization. So yes, we are for unity on the basis of standing together to reject and fight against racism. Part of that means to tell the truth about American history. It's a history of a ruthless, brutal class of capitalists who basically got rich on the backs of unpaid labor of kidnapped Africans and the theft of the lands of indigenous people. And as we've been talking about colonialism in the Philippines or Puerto Rico or Cuba or anywhere on the theft of the lands of people all over the world. I mean, this is actually the key to unity for the working class. Anyway, I say that because Liberation News promotes those politics. And you are the editor of Liberation News. We want every week to close this show by identifying at least some of the key stories that, that have come out in the Monday newsletter from the website that you edit. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Brian. And yes, please check out liberationnews.org and sign up for our newsletter. It comes out every Monday. One article that's written by Tina Landis, who is the author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. She wrote a new piece for Liberation News called Capitalist Leaders at COP26, Full steam ahead to climate catastrophe. This goes in depth into what was discussed at the Glasgow summit and what a people summit would have decided to do, a socialist summit would have decided to do. There's another article I want to highlight titled Venezuela Upcoming Mega Elections Dispel Dictatorship Myth. Venezuela is having very, very important elections next weekend. The opposition has decided to break their boycott strategy for the first time in many. It's a major achievement for the government that they've essentially defeated the opposition's boycott strategy. And so these elections will determine who will occupy crucial local and state office in the country. And finally, I want to highlight a very exciting article titled 25,000 in New York City Vote for a Socialist Mayor. Kathy Rojas, who has been on this show to talk about her exciting working class campaign for mayor of New York City, she achieved a historic result, the most of any left candidate since the beginning of the Cold War, who's running for mayor of New York City. I think a very promising sign of what is to come. You can check out more about that highly, highly successful campaign on liberationnews.org. 25,000 in New York City vote for a socialist mayor. Check out that article and many more on the website. All right, Nicole, we have an exciting week ahead of us. Tonight, we have the seminar, our monthly seminar where people 
who are patrons get to talk to us, ask questions. It's an important conversation. Of course, we encourage everyone who likes this show or re relies on it to do your part and become a patron, which you can do by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. Tomorrow, we'll be back with economist, Marxist economist Richard Wolf. On Thursday, the show that's also broadcast on Breakthrough News now as a YouTube video, we'll have Professor Nazia Kazi talking about the role of Islamophobia as part of the U.S. militarism and the U.S. war drive. Anyway, a big week, and we hope everyone again joins us tonight for our patrons-only seminar. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.